So this identity series, at the, in the citywide gatherings, we're looking at larger themes that relate to how we think about identity. So last Thursday, our first citywide gathering, we looked at the theme of, uh, of biology and how our physical nature shapes our sense of self and, and who we are. Now sadly the recording didn't work last week, um, so you won't be able to listen to that, but we did do this series um, quite a few years ago, so if you go on our website you could find the version of that sermon from about five years ago um, by going back through the archives. Um, in, the, in the coming weeks, at the end of March, we'll look at um, ethnicity and how culture and um, geographical origin and all that kind of stuff related to ethnicity or race affects who we think of ourselves to be. And then at the end of April, we'll look at self-esteem um, as another way in. So they're kind of themes, and we're then looking at how the Bible speaks to those themes and how those themes help us see fresh things in the Bible. So that's kind of a topical approach. Across our breakfast sessions in the mornings, once a month, we'll look at theological categories. So ways the Bible talks and presents um, what it means to be human. So it's what you could call in technical terms a theological anthropology or a biblical anthropology, what the Bible says about what it means to be human and some of those big categories. This morning, the image of God, for example, next month um, or later this month, I think it might be, um, uh, sinner and what does sin mean from a biblical point of view? What does that mean for what it means to be human? And in all of this, hopefully we can then integrate that stuff to have a, a fuller understanding of what it means to be human, a person, an individual, a self. But then you've got to do the work of integrating that with you because each of you here, like we talk about identity, well, you identify a person by saying you're different to them. We can tell you apart, and here's how we can tell you apart. They're your particularities. They're your, your unique place and family of birth, name that's been attached to you, the places that you've been, the things you've done, the illnesses you've had, and so on. All of these things, the qualifications you've earned, um, the likes and follows you've attracted, all these things come up to make you particularly you. And so you've got to take these themes, biology, ethnicity, self-esteem, image of God, sinner, and then integrate it with your own experience. You know, and that, that's then the forming your own sense of self more clearly. Um, and, and your experience, your character, your you your particular you-ness, um, can then be seen within the interpretive grid of the Bible that gives a sense of meaning and purpose and significance to who you are in relation to others, in relation to God. That's the kind of thing we're doing. All right, so image of God today, and I think I've got three headings to help us get our heads around this idea. And the first one is a very simple one in a way, but it's a good place to start. It's the obvious point that the image of God is introduced as human beings are spoken of as being created by God. So it's a category of human beings as creations of God. Um, so we, we just read for that passage that God is making the world, speaking it into being, let it be like this. And then in chapter 1, it's described in terms of God speaking, let there be human beings, let us make man. In chapter 2, the description is slightly different. Uh, uh, Adam being formed from the dust of the earth and then having God breathe into him the breath of life. Either way, God is the source, the creator, the maker of humans. It's a theological description of human origins. However, we might see the mechanics of that looking like, if we looked at it in a historical or scientific way, at the same time the Bible presents with us the theological understanding of that truth, that God is the ultimate source, the creator, the maker. And human beings are said to be created good. That's how the uh, human beings are made, and then as soon as they've made, we then get this finishing of God's work, 
um, and a declaration that it was very good, chapter 1, verse 31. Every day in the creation story we have good, good, good. Here we have very good. And as if to underline or highlight or make it in a slightly bigger font and perhaps Comic Sans font, bright so you can really see it, uh, we're told that then God rested on the seventh day. Nothing more to do. His work is completed as he wanted it to be. And so there's a, like a restful, it's a, it's a long weekend. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good point, a finishing point, a conclusion that human beings will create good. There's a psalm that really um, sings about uh, human beings being created in God's image. Psalm 8, you might want to flip across there, it's one of the psalms about God's creation work, Psalm 8. And it celebrates God. Uh, God uh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Psalm 8 says. You've set your glory in the heavens. So God made everything, God's glorified in everything, and even children praise him in verse 2. And then in verse 3, the song says, When I consider the heavens, the skies, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you've set in place, what is man, that is human beings, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honour, and you made him roar over the work of your hands. God made everything, the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun, and human beings. God cares for human beings. God made human beings precious, lower than the angels, but crowned in honour. Another very famous psalm that sings about this similar theme is the famous Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verse 13 says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Your work's wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Precious, glorious, crowned with honour, fearfully and wonderfully made. You're created by God, you're God's work, you're God's artwork. Even if you find like an old painting that's worn away and uh, uh, the, the years haven't been kind to it, perhaps later terribly stupid, well-meaning art restorers have made it work worse as they've touched it up or censored it in one way or another, Still, if that is an authentic artwork from a great artist, it's a great value, isn't it? To discover, to uncover another masterpiece of a master. You're a masterpiece of a master. Not just, not just uh, an accident, not just the dust of stars accidentally coalescing. Not merely an animal in the lowest way that we can speak about that. There's purpose and meaning and value, preciousness to, to you. That, that's part of what being made in the image of God means. It means being created by God, valued by him as something he said, that's good, that's wonderful. Being created also means being dependent. That's highlighted very clearly in that second description in Genesis 2 of God making human beings from dust. From the dust of the earth, God made him. He breathes into the breath of life. They do become his image, fearfully and wonderfully made, but still dust. You're not merely an animal in the lowest way that could be described, but you are still a, a, an animal in the sense that you have your biological needs, functions and dependences. You're vulnerable as they are to sickness and virus, even their sicknesses, aren't you? Um, you're vulnerable to them. 
Uh, you're mortal in yourself. You're not, human beings are not fundamentally immortal. Even the human soul is not fundamentally some immortal substance that has then had flesh woven around it. You're a mortal thing. Job, um, in, his, um, in his book, um, speaks about if God just, for instance, took away his breath from us, we've returned to dust once more. Yeah? So quickly, we go from all that is wonderful in our humanity to something lifeless, to nothing at all, as time and the ground does its work on us. Psalm 8, even, that, that we looked at before, that celebrates how wonderful it is to be crowned with God's glory and honour, does make a point. We're lower than angels, made a little lower than angels, made part of this earth, this physical, vulnerable, mortal in itself world, different than angels. We could also observe that, again, part of our physical nature, our animal nature, if you like, is our dependence on being part of the human race. We'll look at that in the next breakfast sessions as we think about being sinners and how the sin of Adam is something that then the human race inherits. But we know it every day. The language that's commonly used these days about privilege reinforces that. That if you are born into wealth and power and access and honour, then you enjoy privilege. Not because you're fantastic, but because of, you could say, luck. But if you're born into poverty, and disenfranchisement and rootlessness, then you experience lack of privilege. Um, not because you're worse, but just kind of bad luck, you could say. Or another way of thinking about it is, because of our dependence to being part of the human community, I'm born into a family and, and vulnerable, dependent, reliant upon that family. That family lives in a society dependent upon, reliant upon, vulnerable to that society. And broadest of all, we're part of the human race. Dependent upon, reliant on the human race as a whole. So again, it's that we're not gods, not even angels. We're not in control of ourselves entirely. One of the great movements of the 20th century, and possibly the cruelest philosophical movement ever, was existentialism. <laughs> um, it, uh, it had philosophers who were also artists and were very conscious, I think, of being kind of hip public figures at the same time. And central to existentialism as a philosophy, as well as an, an ethos, a way of life, was uh, you, by your choice, by your existence, each moment, make you. Your existence precedes any essence you might have. You make you as you go. What makes you, you? Existentialism would say, you make you, you. You're making you, you right now. Now, existentialism does have a good point. The power and the significance of human choice is a really big deal. And our experience is very unique as, as we go through the world. It has good things to say. However, as an absolute statement, it is just absurd. You, of course, don't make you, you entirely. You are, of course, born into families, born into communities, born into this particular body, which isn't another body. Yeah? Uh, you, you are not in complete control. Your freedom and your choice does not entirely describe you. You don't have endless freedom to describe you. Humanism kind of grows up 
in the same soil as existentialism, existed before the existentialists themselves would see themselves as humanists. Christians are humanists in a way too, we honour humanity, but, but secular humanism, uh, atheist humanism, would again say we are defined by ourselves, as ourselves, human dignity with reference only to human dignity, human choice, human, human nature is the most glorious thing. No, that's not true. It's just not true. It's manifestly by experience not true. Like it's just not. We know that we are uh, limited and flawed. We're not even in control of ourselves, let alone our destiny. But more over theologically, we're told you're made by God. You're created by God. He grants you life. The image in chapter 2 is of being put in a place where life is provided for you. That's the tree of life image. If we're then removed from the tree of life, we're removed from life. If God withdraws his spirit from us, we return to the dust. There's no point saying, oh, well, if I were God, I would. Because you're not God. And part of wisdom, in good sense, is to have a sense of greater transcendence and our finitude. That's part of wisdom. Ultimately part of happiness and identity and all those other things we look for. To realise our place and what we're not. We're not God. We're creatures. We're his creations. When we say, how dare God? Of course there's a cry of pain that is part of faith. But when it really is just, how dare you, God? There again is, is something quite absurd about the thing. Well, God made us. God's God. You're not. This brings with us, or ought to, humility. Created. Yeah? So good, glorious, and dependent. Secondly, image of God doesn't just refer to everything. It refers to humans in a special way. And so special creation is the second heading we'll look at today. Special creation. What does image mean in particular? Image of God. Well, Genesis 1, um, I've already shown how the, the climax of that whole creation of the world is the creation of humanity. That God makes each thing, declares them good, and then on the sixth day makes humanity separate from other land animals, a separate creation from other land animals, and, and when he completes the creation of land animals and humans, he says that's very good. And at that point, he rests. In fact, even the way the creation is described, we get this little pause, a dramatic pause, um, in verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. And so God created, verse 27. So before God does it, he says he's going to do it. A different rhythm here. Things are broken up. Now, some say God is speaking in a heavenly court to the angels. Some say God is speaking in a sort of a royal we, as we might, I think, get at various points in the Crown TV show where the Queen might say that we wish such and such. There's that kind of royal way of speaking. Uh, one wants such things, and we will get them. That kind of way of talking. Um, as a Christian, you read this thinking of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and wonder if even on the very first pages we see that. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. It's hard, it's hard to know exactly. It's just this curious little detail. But at the very least, uh, the point in, in the flow of the telling is to create a pause. That's the point. It creates a, a pause in the rhythm to draw your attention. There's a pause and there's a deliberation to draw your attention. This is special, in other words. Human beings are special. They are 
created in this special way. They're given a special title. God let us make man in our image, verse 26. So God created man in his image, in the image of God. He created him, a special label given, image of God. It's similar in many ways to the idea of son of God. Now, neither should be taken literally. To be the son of God, uh, Adam is called the son of God, for example, at the end of Luke chapter 3. But to be called the son of God is not to say that literally God had a wife and so gave birth to Adam and Adam and Eve. But that's not the point. It's to say, uh, made by God, specially made by God, so you know, a child rather than a creation, captures specialness. And you could even say son in the Bible culture captures the idea of firstborn son, which is heir or prince. So it's not to say God actually had a wife, um, but it's rather to say that human beings are a special treasured princes and princesses of God. Image, simile, is not to say that God looks like you, that God is a human body. I mean, both misunderstandings about having a wife and having a body are the misunderstandings of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They misunderstand and take it literally. Um, but no, it's not that God had a wife. It's not that um, God had a body. It's not that we look, look like God. It's a way of saying, represent God, specially, specially stand for God. And you get one sense of that in the, the task given to humanity. Because we're given a special title and given a special task. Let's make man in our image, in our likeness, verse 26, and let them rule. God created man in his image, man male and female, verse 28. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. In charge of ruling over God's world, again, like princes and princesses of God, representatives of God in the world. Special, treasured, and reflecting uh, God and God's purposes. Because, well, human beings are even able to be addressed, addressed, talked at. God makes the sun, the moon, and the stars for their purpose. He makes the animals for their purposes, and the plants for their purposes, and they just are. God makes humans, deliberates, speaks to himself, to his heavenly court perhaps, as he deliberates about making them, makes them, and then talks to them. Doesn't talk to the stars, doesn't talk to the badgers, but he talks to the humans and says, You have a purpose, I'm telling it to you. That comes up in chapter 2, as we saw, where God put uh, human beings in the garden for a purpose and said, Do this, but don't do that. He speaks to us, able to be spoken to relationally, to obey, to receive a purpose, God's purpose, carrying on God's rule. The rule is described as ruling, as uh, being fruitful and increasing, so as to rule the whole earth. But in chapter 2, the kind of rule is fleshed out for us, or explained. It's not the rule of do whatever you like, bulldoze the lot, and put up cheap apartment blocks, <laughs> extract every resource you can for you are in the image of God. No, the way it's described in chapter 2 is the Lord God put the man in the garden, 2.15, to work it and to take care of it, to cultivate it, to bring it to flourishing. God blessed you to be a blessing, to rule with blessing and flourishing. God put you in a garden to then tend the garden. Perhaps the idea is that bring the garden out so that the, the garden of the full purposes of cultivation and blessing of God reaches the world. Psalm 8 picks up that same idea. 
Uh, you made little lower than angels, but you crowned human beings with glory and honor, put everything under their feet, that human beings represent God's rule in the world. At our best, it's wonderful. The wildlife rescuer, the lavish, sustainable um, permaculture gardener, <laughs> the artist, the philosopher, the scientist. At, at its best, it's wonderful, as we will look at next time. However, once human beings turn from God, this rule becomes awful, doesn't it? And the same genius that can bring Earth to a wonderful fulfilment and glory can also bring it to such terrible um, damage and harm. Special creation. Note also that uh, the very first page of the Bible is at great pains to say that both sexes share that. Both sexes share the image of God. Both sexes share the glory, the specialness, the status, the role together of being the image of God, male and female. He created them in the image of God, to be blessed, to rule. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 kind of unpack this. This different special creation story highlights uh, further the specialness of humanity, it highlights the special distinctness between the sexes too. A different creation story for male and female. Their similarity and their difference together. It once again describes their role, as I said, in, in uh, uh, taking care of the earth and working it, 2.15. It once again speaks, shows human beings being spoken to. You are free to eat of any tree in the garden. Verse 16. It shows human beings now expressing their rule by Adam naming the animals in verse 19 and following. And in chapter 3, we see uh, again God speaking to human beings, seeking human beings, and the sin of humanity bringing a curse upon the world they were supposed to bless. More of that next time. But what does the image of God mean? Let's just pin it down a little before I apply it in our closing moments. So what does it mean, the image of God mean? This is the end of this second point on the specialness of the image of God. And the third point will be application. So the, uh, the end of this second point, let's pin down the image of God. What does it mean? Well, we've said it means to represent God in the world in a special way. First thing, that it's like a son stands for a father in a particular capacity, like a prince rules on behalf of the king. And so it's connected with rule. As God is the loving ruler of the world, human beings reflect that rule. Responsible always to God's intention, not our own convenience or desire. It necessarily implies, therefore, relationship with God. Hearing God speak to him. Being able to respond back to God. We don't see prayer in these passages, but soon after we do. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's relationship. From the cosmic creator, we then hear about God in chapter 3, verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Lovely little image of, of God's personal relationship with human beings. This means that the image of God carries with it necessary characteristics. In order to represent God in this way, bring the rule of God in this way, have a relationship with God necessary for that, that brings with it, the image of God necessarily carries with it a bunch of characteristics such as intelligence, capacity for sophisticated relationship. I remember reading somewhere in some, I don't know, 
biology book or sociology book um, uh, about how human beings are capable for far greater levels of abstraction than even the most intelligent animals in terms of awareness. That is, you can think about someone else thinking about another person, thinking about a third person's opinion of a fourth person view of you. You're, you're that aware. This is why we have so many mental illness issues, I suppose. But you, you can be thinking, oh, hang on, what's he thinking that he thinks that he said about what he thought about me? Human beings are able for this complex view of relationship and moral reflection, spiritual reflection, artistic um, modulation of all of those things. There's a bunch of characteristics, you see, that, that really come, become necessary if we're to reflect God in the world, his rule, and have relationship with him. So image of God implies those things. Uh, a spiritual relationship capacity. Some think that perhaps even the interdependence of the sexes reflects something of God's nature, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in, in this oneness but threeness. I'm not sure if this particular passage says that in particular. Others point to Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, both of which speak of being made in, remade in the image of God, like Christ, in righteousness and holiness. And they say, well, there you go. Image of God is righteousness and holiness. It's not a very good way to go about definitions. It's a pretty common one in certain older theology books, but I, I think it's, it's picking up a description in the New Testament of optimal image of God, ideal image of God, that we should be reflecting his image in righteousness and holiness, and turning that description into a definition. Now, image of God isn't the same as being righteous and holy, but the rightful image of God ought to be righteous and holy. This is, so I don't think that's quite the definition in that sense. Christ himself is described as the image of God, but once again, I don't think it's not quite right to kind of reverse engineer and say because Christ is the image of God, therefore to be truly human is to be like Christ. That, that's not, no, no, there's still history in the scriptures. God made human beings first and redeemed human beings in Christ. And so uh, there still is a distinction there, but Christ is presented as the image of God in two senses. One, as God the Son. He is said to be the divine image in a far more glorious way than human beings are. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, by him all things were made. Hebrews speaks about him being the exact representation of his being, the, the glory of God, the radiance of his glory. 2 Corinthians 4 says in the gospel we see the image of God in the face of Christ. So there is an image of God far more full and pure and perfect and uh, complete and eternal, able to fully image of God, image God, which is God the Son. Yeah. Uh, in that sense, no human being can come close to that. But Christ is called image of God in the second sense as well, as a new humanity. That is, God the Son, the perfect and complete and fully sufficient image of God, becomes then a human being who is also the new perfected human, being what Adam and Eve never were, better than Adam and Eve could ever be. So 1 Corinthians 15 we read um, uh, last week. Out of dust, God made the first human being, and we're all in his image. Then God made Jesus in his resurrection the, the new human being, and we will bear his image. The new humanity. 
we will be transformed into the image of his son, into the likeness of his son, as Romans 8 to 29 puts it. So God the Son, who is the exact representation of God's glory perfectly, becomes a human being to perfect our humanity as well. And so although there was a sense of the image of God before the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection, um, and so we mustn't say the image of God entirely is summarised by Christ. Perhaps you could say the image of God is perfected in Christ. Yeah? And so we see the human image of God perfected in Christ. So what does this mean with the time remaining? We've got about 10 minutes left. So I'll so go through this and if time we can take questions. If not, but you're not in a rush to go anywhere, you're welcome to come and chat with me. If you do have questions, we'll chat with each other. So point three, application of the image of God. First, it affects the way we treat God. Made by him, we stand in a special relationship to him. Of obedience, but also responsibility. There's an interesting bit in Matthew's Gospel where people ask Jesus his opinion on paying taxes to colonial power, so to speak, the Roman power. You know, should we pay taxes? You know, are you on the side of rebellion that says, no, we owe nothing to the Romans, you know, disobedience, or, or is it, are you compliant? Do you pay taxes? And Jesus says, show me a coin. Whose image is on the coin, Jesus asks, um, in, uh, in Romans, uh, sorry, Matthew 22, verse 20. Whose portrait is this, or whose image is this on the coin? Well, Caesar's image, he's got his head on the coin. Heads or tails? Heads. Caesar. Okay, well, Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's his bit of metal. Give it to him. Whatever. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Now, on one level, he's saying, you can give something as petty as taxes to Caesar. Don't get hung up on tax paying. That's just, that's his petty empire with his circulation of currency. That doesn't compromise you. But when it comes to what God really wants of you, don't give up that. Don't give up your faith and your allegiance to God for the sake of worship to Caesar or corruption by Caesar. On a simple level, he's saying that. A lot of people wonder whether there's a play on words with image, though. Whose image is on the coin? Oh, it's just Caesar's image. Oh, that's Caesar's image. A bit of metal. So give him his image, in the image of Caesar. <laughs> he created it. Metal. Heads and tails. He created them. Give it back to Caesar, his bits of metal. But you are God's. You are his image. And so all of your life and your being and your thoughts and your prayers, as Jesus would say elsewhere in that very same section, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. 22 verse 37, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. There's one God, you're in his image, give him all things. Yeah? It would be a terrible thing to exchange God then for images. If we're made in his image to worship here, wouldn't it be ridiculous for us to swap God for images for money? <laughs> we're the image of God and now we're living our lives for Caesar's bits of metal. What a reducing, debasing way to live, to live for nothing more than money, or virtual money, crypto money. Uh, in, in other parts, like Acts 17 and Romans 1, we get that idea of where God's offspring, why do we think that God lives in like temples we build and is in a statue that we've made? We bow down to a statue, we live our lives around a temple. God's bigger than that. You're bigger than that. Your destiny is bigger. Money bigger than mere religious 
architecture and objects. Affects the way we treat God then. Secondly, what does the image of God mean? Well, it should affect the way we treat people. I mean, the whole creation is God's. I suppose you could say, with a lowercase i, that it's all God's image in a general sense. It shows God's glory, doesn't it? Power, beauty, creativity. Um, yes, so trees and animals and ecosystems and uh, uh, forest strata, fungi and, and, and polar ice caps and bacteria and all these things are God's creation that should be treated well. And yet a special regard for human beings in the Bible. After Noah's flood, Noah is readdressed like an Adam coming off into a cleansed world and said, uh, you're now to rule this world. And if anyone takes the life of a human being, their life will be required of them. For in the image of God, God created, created human beings. Now that's not to say that every society must implement the death penalty. But it is to say that's how serious killing a human being is. That a human being is the most precious of God's creation. And so to kill a human being is, at least in principle, to forfeit your own life, to have done something so severe, that's how precious humans are. James, chapter 3, says, uh, how, how unfitting would it be to praise God with their mouths and then use our same mouths to insult and curse human beings made in God's image. That just can't be. It doesn't work to praise God and then insult people made in God's image. How dare we? Cruel slander, vile words, harsh insults. The origin of human rights, a deep, strong origin for human rights for all human beings, not just Roman citizens, not just the white, not just the male, but for all human beings, must find its origins back here in the image of God. Not just the powerful, the particular ethnicity, particular sex, not just the fully able, with the right intellectual attributes or something, but a strong commitment to all human beings being precious comes from here. That human beings ought to be concerned for the poor, for the disabled, for the vulnerable, for children, for children not yet born, for those at the end of life. None of these are wasteful. None of these are expendable. None of these are better off dead. All human beings are valuable. It should affect the way even we treat our enemies. That's a thought, isn't it? Some of you might feel very strong feelings right now, hey, against uh, the behaviour of Russia. You might feel indirectly that they're your enemy, the planet's enemy, and that their recklessness and warmongering perhaps. You feel really angry. And yet even, even Putin is made in God's image. And so however forcefully I'll be politically or spiritually or morally opposed to his conduct, he remains a human being, a criminal, a bigot, a heretic, a pervert, the worst is still human and so must be treated as human. We mustn't become people who treat the disabled or the elderly or the unborn or the criminals or the enemies in a way other than the 
dignity worthy of the image of God. A uh, French theologian, Henri Blochard, says, although we can behave like dogs or worse than dogs, we are still not dogs, so to speak. You know, it's a weird culture war world we're in and Christians have been swept up into, in, especially in the Western world, this culture war world of us versus them, of right versus left, of progressive versus conservative. It's all tragic and ridiculous and uh, the result of how social media has broken the human society as well. But one particular brand of Christianity, that political, muscular version of right-wing Christianity, has started to use the, the progressive term woke as an insult. It is woke in an insulting way to mean left-wing, unprincipled, worldly, liberal Christianity. It is woke in this bad way to care for the poor, the weak, the immigrant, uh, minority groups who are vulnerable, the well-being and economic uh, well-being of women or whatever. It's woke. It's liberal. It's sold out. My goodness. <laughs> Shouldn't the image of God make the most conservative, traditional Christian be strongly committed to the well-being of all human beings? I may not agree with every political solution, but mustn't we be concerned in some way very deeply and consistently with the well-being of all human beings? To conclude, we find ourselves in the Lord Jesus, and we find God in Jesus. We find ourselves in Jesus, we find God in Jesus. In Jesus, God comes to us, the, the God the Son, who fully reflects God's image, shows God to us more than we've ever seen him before. The image of God is revealed even better than humans could reveal God's image in Christ. God comes to us and shows himself to us. We get to know God better than we ever could before. How wonderful. And in Jesus, at the same time, for he's the God-man, God, the Son, take on human nature. We see our humanity more fully than ever before. We see humanity fulfill, reach its full fullness. Our image is restored, our image is transformed. So then, the invitation to become a Christian and to continue on in a Christian life is to meet God and to be made new in Christ. To meet God and to be made new in Christ. It's a way of describing the Christian life too. To know God closely and deeply and to be made new in yourself day by day in Christ. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? It's a whole lot more than religious practice or political affiliation or moral conduct, isn't it? Something much deeper, much deeper than that. People don't realise that perhaps when you say you're a Christian. They definitely don't understand it that that's what you mean if you said you were an evangelical Christian. <laughs> They'd think very different things, wouldn't they? But this is where we want to find ways to be able to explain, you know, what it means for me to be a Christian. It means to know God and to be made new in Jesus. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, you made us fearfully and wonderfully, gloriously and good. We praise you for our life for all that is good in your creation. We acknowledge that we are dependent upon you and we humble ourselves before you. Forgive us for when we're proud and don't acknowledge you, when we worship other things instead of you, 
when we live for less than your calling on us. Forgive us when we do what is wrong in your name, in your world. We thank you so much for making us new in Christ, showing us yourself more fully in Christ. And we pray that these great truths will shape how we think and feel and live and speak. Even today, we pray. In the name of Christ.